been a while since we featured a special guest for a Halloween visit, but we're going to end the drought today. Last week, I caught up with Laurie Jacobson. Laurie has written and produced several books and documentaries about Hollywood and has become the go-to person for stories about the spooky side of Tinseltown. Laurie, thanks for joining me. Getting into this here, I I like to uh, start off my visits with a brief background synopsis of my guests. So give us the short version of the Laurie Jacobson story. Ah, okay. (laughs) Well, um, I'm from St. Louis, and uh, I've always loved Hollywood. I moved to L.A. in the early to mid-70s. I was in... I. I moved there to be an actress, and I was involved with comedy improv and in a workshop for seven years with uh, as-yet-undiscovered people who who you might know, like uh, Robin Williams and John Ritter and John LaRoquette and Scott Baio and... Uh, all kinds of wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah, I think I might have heard of them. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I felt guilty writing home and saying, watch for a guy named Robin Williams. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we all knew um, instantly from the moment he walked into the workshop that uh, there was nobody else like him. Wow, well, I'll bet. And I'll tell you, inside and out, sweetest, nicest uh most generous guy, really adored him. And John Ritter, too. Just uh, just uh, terrific people. So that was a, a wonderful highlight. And while I, wa- and, um, while I was doing that, I was discovering uh, and reveling in the history of those people who had come before me. And I began collecting uh, details and information. You know, I'll tell you, wait, waiters, waitresses, maitre d's, parking lot attendants, um, the guards at the studio gates, they saw everything, yeah. knew everything, and nobody was talking to these people. So I began gathering stories, and um, it led to my first book, in 84, which was called Hollywood Heartbreak. And once that came out, I was invited to write documentaries and TV specials. I worked with the wonderful Jack Haley Jr. Um, for uh, 10 years, almost 10 years. I was head of development for him, and we worked on some amazing projects and I really had the time of my life. I really (laughs) did. Um, Well, going back to your comedy days, uh, I've seen on some of your bios the term reformed stand-up comic. (laughs) Explain that term. Well, uh, you know, stand-up comics are pretty singular. They have a, you know, one-track mind, and that is to make jokes. It's difficult to tell... um, where the onstage persona uh, and the uh, normal person um, leave off, you know? I honestly think that was um, part of Robin's problem, uh, because we all know he had some issues from from which he recovered. Um, But uh, it's not easy. So um, it was... uh, 
it was not a life I wanted to pursue. Okay. Um, it was difficult, you know, wait, wait, especially for a woman at that time. There were not a lot of female stand-up comics who, uh, who you can name from that era. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've, I've heard these talk show hosts ask um, maybe the spouse of a comedian, you know, are, are they as funny at home as they are <laughs> on stage? And a lot of times... It seems like most of the time the answer is, well, no, they're just a regular person. So. Yeah. Some can be, you know, very serious. It's a, it's a, also was a cutthroat business, you know. Jokes, stealing jokes and, you know. Um, it, was, it was tough. But as I was gathering information um, on those who had come before me, there were many who... Um, who died uh, before their time, who were uh, victims of unsolved, mysterious deaths. And I began writing about that, and there were often ghost stories attached to those kinds of stories. And I used to just file that away as, as part of Hollywood's lore, and... Then I actually experienced the ghost myself. Oh! In Grauman's Chinese Theater, and that led me to uh, a sideline of tracking ghosts in Hollywood. <laughs> okay. Well, and I was going to ask you how you got interested uh, in that part of, uh, you know, the Hollywood lore. Uh, you know, you, you now you seem to. Sp- kind of specialize in the ghostly side of things and uh you know i love a good ghost story and you know i was raised on those universal monsters and uh my my kids were and now my grandkids are and so um you know i I guess i just kind of came by it honestly but uh you just kind of took a sidetrack there then i guess well um you know tim it's I felt for a while that I had really missed Hollywood's heyday. Um, you know, Gable and and Harlow and Spencer Tracy and um, Fred Astaire, just all the wonderful people that I stayed up, you know, watching on the Late Late Show. Um, and... and so finding that uh, there were still spirits present um, in the old nightclubs and theaters uh, really was a very romantic idea for me, that, um, that it's still out there. Yeah. I was going to ask you if, if you believed in ghosts or if you just presented the stories and just kind of let the reader or viewer decide for themselves, but... You said you saw one, so... Well, I didn't can... see one. Oh. I, I saw... Um, I, I saw... A, a, I saw handprints in a curtain and lifting the curtain up off the ground and shaking it. Okay. You know, and there was nobody back there. And it was not a blowing-in-the-breeze kind of movement. It was, you know... 
two hands grasping uh, a curtain, and we could. And I wasn't alone. <laughs> and I set a new land speed record. <laughs> running away because <laughs> I was completely freaked out. But after that, I went out with um, experts, psychics and parapsychologists, and had really some amazing experiences. I always believed in ghosts. You know, I was always the one around the campfire loving those kind of stories. But um, what I really feel like is... Um, you know, they, that spirits stick around here for very human reasons. Um, in many of the unsolved murders that I covered in Hollywood, let's say like George Reeves uh-huh. in Superman yeah. on TV, um, he was very aware that his fans were mostly children. And when it when it was believed that he committed suicide, children the world over were absolutely devastated. And he would have hated that. And he would never have done that to his fans. And uh, many people believe that George Reeves was murdered, especially from uh, the autopsy report, um, you know, George was shot, uh, and he was shot by a gun that was 12 to 16 inches away from his head. And that's just not the way you kill yourself. (laughs) Right. Right? Right. So, but it is the way you die from a gunshot if you are struggling over a gun with someone. And that's what I believe happened. And his spirit was seen for years at his house where he was killed uh and it's so human he was seeking truth justice in the american (laughs) way you know so still um so i found that often in these mysteries um the the victims were sticking around for very human reasons and sometimes they stick around because they loved the place and they just wanted to visit it one more time i mean how many times have you heard a friend uh who say lost a parent and they got married and said i really felt my mom or my dad was here with me Mm -hmm. well they were you know they were they may not stick around for the rest of your life but you know, very human reasons bring them back to certain scenes and places. So, yeah, I'm a definite believer. <laughs> so, th- these um, hauntings that you that you write about not not all of them are tragic uh, situations. Then, um, oh no, some of them just hang around. Absolutely. Um, Well, you know, I used to work in um, a club called the Comedy Store on the Sunset Strip. Mm -hmm. And um, back when I was in in the workshop with all those aforementioned people. And it used to be Ciro's Nightclub, which was the most popular, most glamorous club on the Strip. 
uh, in Hollywood's golden age, the 40s and the 50s. And that place was haunted from the, the basement to the third floor offices. Um, and by all kinds of people, um, you know, sometimes we would hear after the, and it was always after the club was closed. Um, you know, when a club is filled with hundreds of people laughing and drinking, it's very hard to pick up on any kind of, uh, of other activity. But when it was closed and we were cleaning up, we like, we would hear the voices of women in the bathroom, um, talking in a fashion that was out of style, like that heel was two-timing me, and, you know, and we, what? <laughs> you know, we, this, is, this is the 80s. Yeah. What wow. heel, you know? <laughs> we would go in there uh, to tell whoever was in there that they'd have to leave, the club was closed, and there wouldn't be anybody in there. So, um uh, many people saw men in um, pinstripe suits with wide lapels, very 40s. Um, uh, if you, you may remember a, um, a comic named Sam Kinison. Oh, yeah. Okay, oh, yeah. Well, Sam very was, loud. <laughs> Sam used to be a... Preacher, yeah, it, like in a revival tent, you know, and he yelled and screamed through most of his act. And um, man, I'll tell you, the ghosts in the comedy store just hated his act. It was so disruptive. It was so loud. And any time he was on, something always went wrong. Like the lights would go out, the sound system would fail. Twenty people could go on before Sam, and nobody had a problem. And Sam would come on, and all the equipment would break down. Uh, one night, Sam was in um, and one of the rooms, uh, one of the performance rooms that was already closed for the evening, and he just shouted out. Come get me. And ashtrays lifted off of tables and flew across the room wow. against the wall over his head. Wow. Um, well, he asked for it. Uh, yeah, he did ask <laughs> for it. One, one comic um, named Blake Clark often closed up. So, like, one night he's in one of the rooms and he saw that someone left the stage lights on so he walked onto the stage to the back of the stage to turn the light off he turned around and 43 chairs were suddenly piled on the stage huh. he had just crossed and it was empty wow you know, like in three seconds <laughs> 40 chairs are piled up um and he he saw many people there um and some were hiding, you know, as if they'd been, um, well, as if they were afraid of something. Um, when a club is as popular as Ciro's was, uh, the mob often wanted a piece of the action. And Mickey Cohn was uh, a gangster who was 
nicknamed the king of the Sunset Strip. He had a men's clothing store a few blocks down from Ciro's, which was merely a front for his business. And every week he would send an empty hat box to Ciro's with a note that basically said, fill this with money and send it back to me. And, um, you know, so there were some uh, rather nefarious goings-on there at the comedy store. And there was something in the basement, something terrible happened in the basement. We took psychics down there, um, and uh, one was... One immediately fell to the ground with terrible pains in his legs. And I think someone was uh, done away with down there. And there, there is something in the basement that is angry and ugly. And, um, and it's, it, it was seen once or twice by two different comics. Um, as as a seven foot blacker than black vague outline of a man who made this terrible growling noise now uh blake clark saw it once coming out of the basement and he just really ran for his life. He was terrified. And Blake was a platoon sergeant in Vietnam. There's not a lot that scares this guy. Yeah. Um, so after he saw it, the owner of the comedy store asked him in the afternoon to get some supplies from the basement. He said, no way, I'm not going down there. <laughs> and she said, you know, I need these things. If you're that afraid, take some friends. So he took two other guys, and he crept down to the basement, and he didn't see anything this time, but one of the guys saw a black shadow rising from the corner of the room, and he held out his hands in front of him and was screaming, no, no, stay away, and Blake, Blake didn't have to see it. He knew what was down there. He grabbed his friend's hands, and he said they were burning hot, like he'd been holding them against a stove. But all three men could see their breath in the room. And as they're scrambling up the stairs to get away from this thing, a piece of cardboard falls out of the air from nowhere. It hits Blake on the hands. He picks it up. And it had his name written on it. Oh, wow. <laughs> that, that scared me more than any other story. Uh, you know, because it proved it was a, a thinking entity. Yeah. So, you know, I, if I were Blake, I would have changed my name and moved to another <laughs> zip code, you know? Yeah. Uh, in your Hollywood Haunted book, are there any other stories you can tell us or or from your you've done a couple of documentaries too uh about uh hauntings as well yes i i now i now live in the uh bay area north of san francisco and um i've written and hosted two documentaries um haunted wine country and 
haunted Sonoma County where I live and um, had some terrific experiences doing that and, uh, you know, finding out about my local ghosts up here. And those are available through me. Just write me at lauriejacobson.com and uh, love to send you one. As for my book, yeah, ask uh, anybody in particular you were interested in. No, just whatever you want to tell. Uh, well, you mentioned Universal Studios and how you you and your kids love the Universal Monsters. Uh-huh. I do have a chapter on studios. Studios are rife with with ghosts seen there all the time um uh, that's those are some of the stories i got in the 70s when i interviewed um those uh pops like characters that uh the night watchmen and the guards at the gate of studios you know while they strolled the the studio at night checking on um sound stages and stuff the things they saw and heard um, were just amazing. And at Universal, there was one soundstage there. Um, they just recently tore it down, too, which is such a shame. It was built especially for Lon Chaney Sr.'s um, version of Phantom of the Opera. Oh, They built the Paris Opera House sets and they were enormous uh-huh. uh bigger than any soundstage that they had at universal so i don't think this has ever happened before but they built a soundstage just to hold the scenery for this one film and that is such a tribute to cheney and his work and many teamsters and studio employees saw and heard weird things in that studio during the day and during the night. Um, And particularly, they heard footsteps in the catwalks at the top of the the soundstage. Um, Someone walking through the soundstage, someone running along the catwalks, and occasionally they would catch... uh, a sighting of a man in a cape running through the soundstage. Now, uh. come on. <laughs> that's, that's pretty wild. <laughs> and, um, the, of course, everyone knows the famous corner of Hollywood and Vine. Well, uh, that happened to be uh, one of the favorite blocks of Bela Lugosi. Of course, Dracula. Uh-huh. He was really something very special. Um, who and and sadly he he got typecast mm-hmm. uh, as Lugosi. Uh, honestly, it's what happened to Robin too. You know, he wore his own clothes as Mork, and then he couldn't dress that way anymore. And Lugosi had um, very little makeup uh, for for Dracula. And just got, and though he was a wonderful dramatic actor, he just got typecast as Dracula, and that's all he he said. It was a blessing and a curse. Yeah. But when he was in the chips, he loved to go to Hollywood and Vine, 
and it's where he bought his hand-rolled cigars and uh, his copy of Variety every day, and he greeted all the um, store clerks who knew him quite well. It was his favorite haunt, and just a block down um, was a um, mortuary that was run by Hungarians. So he always stopped at fellow Hungarians, and uh, so he always stopped in there to say hello to them, and those are the people that um, had the service and burial for him. Oh. He is laid out at this mortuary, after he, of course, after he passed away, and he's wearing his Dracula cape and ring and... Uh, I think Peter Lorre and Vincent Price showed up to pay their respects, and, and Peter Lorre said he just wanted to make sure he was really dead. <laughs> and then they put his um, coffin in the hearse, and the hearse was to cross Hollywood Boulevard and travel above it, on the, on the street north of it, um, to the cemetery uh, because the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce said it was just too depressing to all the tourists on Hollywood Boulevard to constantly see hearses going down uh, the boulevard. So they had made that agreement with them, and the hearse driver, and I spoke to him, okay? I got to him, you know, early on, and um, he said he got to the light at Hollywood Boulevard and was preparing to drive across it when suddenly he lost control of the vehicle and he and the wheel turned in his hands and he could not stop it and uh, drove onto Hollywood Boulevard and went very slowly down the block to Vine Street, and this had been, as I said, Bela's favorite block in the entire city. Huh. And he, it was as if he was saying goodbye. He just wanted to travel that block one last time. Wow. And when he got to Vine Street, the uh, control of the vehicle was returned to the driver, and... Um, when I talked to him, he said, to this day, I can't explain what happened. Now, you know, he, when he got to the corner of Hollywood and Vine, he might have seen his, his old friend Lon Chaney Sr. Because back in the day before he was a big star at Universal, Lon Chaney Sr. sat on a bus bench at the corner of Hollywood and Vine. Oh. And that, and he ca caught a bus that took him to all the major studios where he would try and get work. And after he passed away, so many Los Angeles citizens saw his ghost sitting on that bench that they put a plaque. And I read this on the front page of the L.A. Times. They put a plaque on the bus bench that said, be careful where you're sitting. <laughs> you might be sitting on Lon Chaney Sr. <laughs> and years later, they replaced the bench, and he was never seen there again. Oh, wow. So, you know, they tell you that certain objects 
contain energy. It's why you're never supposed to remove things from sacred burial sites or the pyramids and places like that. And, you know, they removed the... It was the bench he was attached to. When they took that bench away, he he never appeared there again. Huh. And you mentioned that they, they tore down that soundstage. Um, it, I, I'm guessing that nothing has ever happened on that site since then either. Correct. <laughs> I wow, know. That's weird. Slowly it disappears. Um. What, what do your book and or documentaries do they are they kind of divided up into like stories about a certain person or is it just kind of all lumped together more like a like a history? Um, uh, well, I have several books, um, and there you know there are many chapters in each book on different people. Okay. It's very uh, readable and easy. Um, Dishing Hollywood is available and uh, about um, mysteries and scandals. Yeah. With a pertinent recipe attached to each one. Sometimes it's a Last Supper. Sometimes it's a favorite meal. And I really wanted to clear up some. Um, uh, some mysteries that had, uh, well, like Mama Cass is in there. You know, she did not die from choking on a ham sandwich. Um, and that story just haunted her and followed her around. Uh-huh. Um, so there were several things I wanted to clear up in that book. And that's actually my favorite book. Um And uh, my most recent book is called TV Dinners, and it is um, the story uh, of 40 television kid stars that we grew up watching. I'm married to one of them. My husband is John Provost, who played Timmy on Lassie. Right. So it's, you know, Wally and the Beave and uh, Angela Cartwright and Bill Mooney and um, Alison Arngrim. It's the 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, classic TV shows. And uh, they also give their favorite uh, dishes from the era and today. So that's a fun read. Um, In between, I wrote um, Hollywood Haunted which is strictly about my ghost stories mm-hmm. that I collected. Um, theaters, restaurants, um, private homes, some are c- celebrities, some have seen celebrities, some have lived <laughs> with celebrity ghosts. Um, and uh, that book, I am proud to say, was in print for 19 years. And uh, and I have just gotten the rights back to it, and I am making an updated version of it, and I'm going to re-release it hopefully later this year. Oh, okay. And you know, I I interviewed John several years ago, and he he mentioned your book, Timmy's in the Well. Correct. <laughs> oh, love that book. We worked for that on. We worked for on that for seven years and um we are doing an update on that and um and that will be re-released for christmas 
Okay. So Timmy's not in the well then anymore. <laughs> Timmy never fell in the well. <laughs> That's true. I Where think that he, expression came from. Yeah, I think he told me that uh, uh, when I was talking to him. Uh, and you know something I didn't know about him uh, was that his folks uh, were from Alabama. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, his dad was from Mobile. Yeah. His mom was from Southern Texas. Okay. Still a Southern girl. So. Absolutely. <laughs> they, absolutely. They were, you know, grits and collard greens. and. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm not so much on the collard greens, but the grits, yeah. I'll eat grits any day. Grits and pecan pie. Oh, yeah. Well, now, you mentioned, you know, your other books. Uh, I saw where you've got another book coming out uh, about the Beatles next year. Oh, I do. It's my first uh, non-Hollywood book, though it is a history book. It's called Top of the Mountain, The Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965. It was the first rock and roll concert ever in a stadium. No one ever thought... You know, the Beatles at that time had played for maybe 5,000 people. This was 56,000 people. And it, and it changed everything. Yeah. You know, technology was way behind. Nobody could see them. Nobody could hear them over the screaming. And four years later, there was Woodstock. <laughs> so, you know, people woke up the next morning and said, this is the future and we're unprepared. You know, and also 50, n never had had so many thousands of rock and roll fans gathered in one place before. You know, they, it was life-changing for many, many of the people that were there. They looked around and said, you know, it's not just me in my room with my record player, <laughs> my mono record player. Yeah. You know, this is a movement. Yeah. Then, of course, there were so many people there that later became famous. Um, Whoopi Goldberg was there, Meryl Streep, Steve Van Zandt, um, Joe Walsh, uh, two ladies who ended up married to the Beatles, uh, Barbara Bach and Linda Eastman were both there. So... I have I interviewed dozens and dozens of people who were there in all capacities and um, found fabulous, fabulous photos. I watched it on TV. Oh, you did? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid. I, yeah, I remember all the screaming and, you know, yes. they said they couldn't hear themselves over the screaming either, so... Oh. No, and actually, John John Lennon went kind of nuts at the end, um, laughing. He was just like he realized he could. He was playing his organ with his elbow and singing gibberish because he he realized it just didn't matter. Yeah. Um, and jo he and George absolutely cracked up on stage at the at, during the last song and. Um, one of the people that I interviewed um, had sneaked onto the field uh, with phony press pass and stood at the bottom of the stage um, where he took uh, 50 photos um, and gave me the use of them. Um, and he 
captured this marvelous photo of George and John laughing like crazy uh, over the organ, and that is the cover of the book. Years later, um, John was with uh, the gentleman who produced that event, and he said to him, I, I saw the top of the mountain that wonderful night. Okay. I was going to ask where the title of the book came from. It seems like I'm a little psychic <laughs> today, <laughs> feeling your questions before you ask. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm just going to have to get back with you whenever this book comes out and, and just talk about the book. You know, I, I know where I, I saw where you've, you've been a, uh, on CNN, you've been on A&E, History and Discovery Channels, uh, TV Land, AMC. I, I'm, you know, I just want you to know that now you've hit the pinnacle by being on my Good Time Gold Midday Show. Top of the mountain. Yep, Beep. top of the mountain. Good segue there. Oh, I, I did want to ask you: Do you still he- head up the the Living Legends? I do. Um, I do. I my company, Living Legends Limited. Uh, I book celebrities at special events. Of course, we've been kind of quiet these last two years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not too many special events, but yeah. Yes, you know, uh, uh, the autograph shows and the comic cons and vintage car shows and theater openings and all museums, all kinds of special events. Anywhere anybody wants a celebrity to appear. Okay. Well, okay, so tell us where... Folks can go to get your books. Um, thank you, Tim. You can get them anywhere uh, books are sold. And, of course, Amazon. And uh, my website is my name, lauriejacobson.com. Uh, and they're, they're, they're all out there. Are, what about the documentaries? Can, can people see those anywhere? Um. I say write to me for that. Okay. Uh, the the one is available um, online, uh, Haunted Wine Country, but the Haunted Sonoma County uh, is a sellout. Okay. All right. And I saw where you were also in a movie yourself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I did get a little work as an actress, you know, but... Uh, Yes, someone um, wrote and directed a, a film, uh, and they wrote a part especially for me, which was a thrill. Ah. And, uh, yeah, so I did a little acting. Okay, and that movie, what was that movie? Oh, now you had to go ask <laughs> me that. It was a while back, and... <laughs> Not Fade Away? Oh, there, there yeah. you go. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, I did a little bit of Googling, too, so... Google and Wikipedia are good for something. Yes, they Sometimes. are. I use them all the time. Oh, uh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, I appreciate you taking your time out and uh, for my little Halloween feature this year. And like I say, well, I'll have to get back with you whenever this Beatles book comes out. About uh, June 1st. Okay. 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 And then uh, I guess we can talk about your updated uh, TV dinners and and. Timmy's in the Well books, too. Super. So, I look forward to it. All righty. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for asking me, Tim. <laughs> Thanks. You have yourself a wonderful Halloween. All righty. You too. Thanks. <laughs>
That was Lori Jacobson, writer and producer of All Things Hollywood. Again, more information on her books can be found at lauriejacobson.com.